Last summer, I was on a sailing boat somewhere between South Wales and Land's End. And dusk was falling and everything was beautiful. I am profoundly refreshed when I am out of sight on a little boat and the waves are lapping the hull. <clears throat> the dolphins had even come and dived under the boat and played and lifted our spirits in a way which only dolphins can. But we were in grave danger. The uh, DECA navigation showed that there was a very large vessel on a collision course with us. We couldn't see it anywhere. The horizon was clear in all directions in the gathering gloom. But our skipper, wise man that he was, changed course instantly. And uh, within five minutes, a huge oil tanker bore down on us, heading for Milford Haven. We had been in danger, and we didn't even know it. Just like the people of Amos's day. And God needed to send him to warn them of that danger. At the moment, seismologists in Israel are predicting a major quake. You probably know that the Rift Valley runs right through uh, Israel, the largest crack on the Earth's surface. The region is not unfamiliar with seismic activity. Now, if danger is coming and nobody says anything and lots of people are injured, whose responsibility is it? But if those that know give the warning, then they have played their part and it's up to the people to respond. And so it is with Amos speaking to God's people. Let's have a little bit of historical background, if we may. Um, the nation of Israel reached its peak under David and Solomon. However, David, as we know, saw a beautiful woman bathing, and that led to a lot of sin with Bathsheba. Nathan the prophet was sent to the king to, to, to denounce him and tell him that he'd done wrong for killing Bathsheba's husband. And the punishment was to be that the sword would not leave the house of David as a result. And the rot for the kingdom set in at that point. David's son Solomon reigned, and that, those were the glory days of the kingdom. He built the temple, but he also ruled somewhat ruthlessly, there was a lot of forced labour. He also loved many foreign women who brought their gods and their idols into the land of Israel. When Solomon died, the, king divided, the kingdom divided. And one of Solomon's own sons ruled the southern kingdom. Uh, the kingdom of Judah we can see uh, in the bottom part there. And a man called Jeroboam, son of Nebat took over the top half of the nation, Israel. 
He wasn't even of the royal line. He was merely a courtier in the palace. And if you read Kings and Chronicles, Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, comes up time and again as the man who led Israel into terrible sin and idolatry. He figured that uh, people, if, if everybody had to go down to Jerusalem in the southern country for their worship, then they would not be entirely loyal to him as king in the northern territory. So he established two shrines, um, one right up at Dan in the top there and another at Bethel in the south, although the capital was Samaria, which also became a centre of pagan worship. Sure, they continued to worship God and offer sacrifices, but they mixed it with worshipping Baal. We've heard of him. That was a fertility cult, and it involved having sex with temple prostitutes in order to encourage the gods to provide fertility to the soil and good crops. How abhorrent. And it was, it was Amos's uncomfortable privilege to tell the people what was going on and to call them back to God. When the people were worshipping God faithfully, there was no need for a prophet. It was only when they became wayward that prophets were needed. And uh, Amos ministered at a time, uh, well, 40, 30 years before the Assyrians took the nation away. Let's quickly look at the other map. And look how tiny Israel is and Judah in comparison with that, um, with the Assyrian Empire, centered as it was on Nineveh. By the way, two of the minor prophets are devoted to Nineveh. Jonah, the first one, he went and told them to turn, otherwise the place would be destroyed. God noticed that they did repent and the judgment was averted, but more than a hundred years later, Nahum comes along and says, because they'd reverted to their old ways, it's too late, chums, you've had it, even if Moses and Elijah were to stand and pray before God, I would not hear, and you know the story. Uh, uh, Nineveh was taken with scarcely a, 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 an arrow being shot. In fact, the, uh, <clears throat> the rulers of the city were so drunk that they were unable to uh, lift up a hand against Nebuchadnezzar who came to take the city. What God says through his prophets comes about. What I love about this is that we read that Amos was a real man. We know where he came from, the village of Tekoa, 13 miles south of Jerusalem. We know his profession. He was a keeper of um, sheep, and he also tended sycamore fig trees, which was the variety eaten by poor people. He was, if you will, something of a country peasant, not the ideal candidate to be sent to the royal court in the north and tell them of their wicked ways. But God knew what he was doing. 
I have a certain affinity with Amos for two reasons. My nickname at school was Amos, Amos Kito. Kito is my surname. <clears throat> and I'm also a country yokel and proud of it. <clears throat> God can use country yokels. Intriguing that Amos was denouncing vacuous offerings to God, sacrifices against a backdrop of complete indifference to the poor and the downtrodden. People were being exploited right, left and centre. In a later chapter we read about the merchants who couldn't wait for the Sabbath to finish so that they could start selling overpriced grain and it says they even swept up the dust from the floor and added that to their sales to improve the revenues. So this uncomfortable profit has to do with idolatry. It has to do with unjust practices. And intriguing that Amos, who tended sheep just a few miles from Jerusalem and therefore was preparing animals that would, would some of them be offered as sacrifice in Jerusalem, he is now saying, away with your sacrifices, they stink in God's nostrils. There are a series of themes which come through the Minor Prophets. Let me mention some of them, but before I do, let's uh, just get a bit more of a historical context. Another Jeroboam is on the throne during Amos's time, Jeroboam II. Now, because the northern kingdom was rather pagan and these uh, golden calves or bulls had been installed at various shrines and idolatry was woven into the fabric of society, it was not a stable kingdom. The average life of a king was just three years in the northern kingdom and at least six of them ended by being assassinated. It was a dodgy place to be a ruler. Righteousness lifts up a nation and promotes stability. Sin does the opposite. Down in the south, where the good king Uzziah was king, things were going better. Uzziah was on the throne for over 40 years, although he lapsed towards the end of his life, as we know. Jeroboam II was a little different from the average king because he managed to, to last for a similar period of time, but his time came to an end. And whilst these men were on the throne, Assyria was in something of decline and uh, left Israel and Judah to their own devices. And so stability came, trade flourished, there was great affluence and opulence. In this book, if we've read it, you will talk about ladies reclining on couches inlaid with ivory, applying the finest of the lotions, telling their husbands to bring yet another bowl of wine whilst people were making music. It is a society with great wealth, great indulgence in luxury, and social injustice, 
and considerable sexual looseness. Now, where have we come across those issues, I wonder? Is this book relevant to us here in Surrey in 2018? I wonder. Um, it was also a time of great sophistication. Rome and Carthage were both being founded at this time, and the Greek language was beginning to expand throughout the Mediterranean. Indeed, the Olympic Games were established at this time, and the foundations for philosophy, which has influenced much of our ideas about democracy, were established at this time. God needs to raise up his people to speak at significant moments in history, and so he does here. Interestingly, the first couple of chapters are directed not towards Israel, because uh, Amos was prophesying to the northern kingdom. By the way, Isaiah and Micah were busy doing so in the south. Um, they had messages for uh, Tyre, top left, uh, and that was the uh, famous seafaring trading nation and very wealthy with it. There was also messages for Gaza down here. The Philistines, of course, came from Crete and the Minoan Empire. Now, down here we have Edom, and both the Edomites and the Moabites were related to the Israelites. Moab here, uh, and Ammon, capital Rabat. Now, what's the capital of Jordan? Same place. Amman. I ought to know. I've been there. Um, so God had something to say to all the other nations he wasn't judging them according to Israelite law because he treated his family more severely but he did judge them for their inhumanity in the case of Damascus or Syria and cruelty brutality in the case of Gaza treachery in the case of Tyre because they reneged on a treaty and sold their brothers in, in slavery, even despite a treaty of friendship. Edom and Ammon and Moab also were denounced by God and by the prophet for their ruthlessness and barbarity and disrespecting the sacred, and that's much of chapter 1 and some of chapter 2. And then the prophet begins to speak against Judah in the south, and still everyone in Israel is smiling. Okay, everybody else has gone astray. We're okay. And then it gets more uncomfortable as God's messenger homes in unerringly on the target and picks out one by one all the things that God has a grievance with. There's no escaping from God's gaze. What are we to do with all of this? What are we to make of it well first of all there is a message that God loves his people and the prophet who follows Amos is Hosea 20 years later if Amos comes with thundering judgment crying out like a roaring lion Hosea comes gently wooing the people presenting God's love 
and you never taste the love and the passion and the anguish of God for his people more than in the book of Hosea. We discover that God is holy and pure and does not tolerate wrong, that he permits no rivals in the affections of his people. That's why he was so angry about the worship of Baals. And we discover that God isn't going to do anything without at least warning his people first. He is a compassionate God. And he sends the messenger uh, with a message of trouble and destruction, not because he wants to bring punishment, but because he wants to bring correction. Think of a child, maybe one of your children, that's run out into the road in a busy street without looking. What would you do? Well, I would not be PC if it were my child, and I would probably thump them fairly fairly uh, soundly, and there would be some tears. But that would be an expression of my love, because I wouldn't want that child ever to do that again and risk losing their lives. So a bit of pain, if it corrects them, and they learn to stay away from danger, would be a good thing. The same it is, as it is with God. God's judgment is not retributive. God does not delight in delivering pain and punishment. It's always corrective. Now, the shadow across all of the prophets in the Old Testament is Assyria and later on Babylon. And you can see both of them in that slide. And the coming judgment is to come from those directions. That, that is the regional, they are the regional superpowers. But if they overstep the mark, and they both did, they in turn would experience God's judgment. Even Babylon was taken over by King Cyrus from Persia. But when God's people were carried off into captivity, as we know from, the, from Judah, they were allowed to come back by Cyrus. And they, um, they never again reverted to idolatry. They had learned their lesson. So God's punishment, to some extent, worked. However, for the Assyrians, uh, for the northern kingdom, they were mostly deported to Assyria, to Nineveh and surrounding nation, uh, cities. And the Assyrian king uh, resettled Israel with Assyrians. They intermarried, and the result was the Samaritans, who were half Jewish and half not, and rejected by the Jews, as we know. And there are a few Samaritans still living in, in Samaria to this day. I want to jump to chapter 7, where God shows in picture form to the prophet two specific disasters that are about to come. One is a swarm of locusts coming and devastating the land. And this is the response of the prophet. I cried out, Sovereign Lord, forgive. How can Jacob survive? He is so small. 
and looking at this map, uh, Israel, which is, and Jacob is a euphemism for Israel, is rather tiny compared to that huge empire. Would you not agree? What is the nature of the God that we talk to? Here we have a prophet interceding with God. Lord, don't do it. They can't take it. Here's God's response. The Lord relented. This will not happen. However, Amos has another terrifying picture that comes up either by dream or by vision. And this time it's fire devouring everything. And again he says, Sovereign Lord, I beg you, stop. How can little Jacob survive? He is so small. This will not happen either, the Sovereign Lord said. Have you ever had an experience of an unpleasant dream where something bad was happening to a member of your family or to you or somebody you know and you wake up somewhat distressed? What was that all about? Sometimes it can be merely a symptom of background anxiety, but sometimes, especially if you can remember it sometime later, maybe it's a message from God warning you of something that's about to happen so that you can do what Amos did and intercede before God to avert that disaster. Some of you will know that I used to work for Elam Ministries, the Persian ministry based at Shackleford. And I was encouraged to go and work there by the Wycliffe Bible Translator Consultant, who told me several years later, Andy, the real reason you're here is not to raise funds and to travel the length of the country promoting Elam. The real reason you're here is to pray for what you see happening and for the people doing it. And I took that to heart. Um, and perhaps my role in my own church, and for some of you in this church, things may not be always according to your preferences and liking. Maybe you're like me, you're deeply disturbed by what's happening in our nation, whether it be politics and Brexit and the parlor state of our government and the infighting in Parliament, or maybe you are deeply disturbed by the homosexuality that's being taught in many of our schools, except, of course, where the Muslims have objected and it's been waved aside. Or maybe you are aware that there is a Koran sitting on top of the Bible on the speaker's table in the middle of Parliament. And you may have heard of predictions that Britain will become a Muslim nation. There is an imam not far from uh, the school where um, you are involved. And the imam reckons that London will become a Muslim city within 15 years and Britain within 20 what are we going to do with all these anxieties and concerns? We're going to do what Amos did and intercede before God. But I think we mustn't evade the message of the rest of Amos for us. So let me quickly raise a few thoughts and I'll finish. There was devotion to luxury whilst ignoring those who don't have enough. And in our comfort... We must 
be mindful of those who do not have enough. It's good that there is a local food bank that uh, some of you are connected to. There was pride in fine property. That's uncomfortable for those of us that live in rather nice houses. We need to handle that with humility and with gratefulness. God hates pride. Chapter 6 and verse 8 says this, I abhor the pride of Jacob and detest his fortresses. It's all going to be demolished, God goes on to say. What about the oppression of the poor? Well, we don't do that here in Milford, do we? Or do we? What about my... What about my, um, the income in retirement and where it's invested? Is any of it invested in a company which exploits people and pays them less than $2 a day in Bangladesh for making sweatshop garment garments? Or what about my shares, if I have any, in a bank that's charging 29.5% interest on the credit card payments? Is that just... What am I to do about that? Or what about Neil Woodford's investment trust, trumpeted as one of the best in the UK, with his substantial holding in tobacco? What do we know about tobacco? It's beginning to get a little bit more close to home and a little bit more uncomfortable. And I, I don't have the answers. I'm raising some questions. I did have a holding in Neil Woodford's high income trust and I sold it. Uh, we need to be ethical in our investments and in our spending. For some of us, we have relatives or friends who are struggling and what is our responsibility in uh, making sure that uh, we don't ignore them before we go off on our cruise or whatever it might be. Maybe there are elderly neighbours who need uh, a friendly face and some encouragement. God wants us to enjoy the good things that he's given us, but not if it's at the expense of somebody else. Can I urge us to pray for Sarah and the work that she does in London at the forefront of the battle, one might say. You're committed to the food bank. You're committed to mechanics for Africa. God delights in these things. He wants us to be salt and light in our community. So, in summary, what are we to say? Amos is praying affected God and turned aside some disaster. His prophesying also angered men. He got deported for it, uh, especially by Amaziah, the bishop in the north of the country. Seek me and live, he says. Hate evil, love good, maintain justice. Let justice roll on like a river, righteousness like a never-failing stream. Or as Proverbs puts it, to do what is right and just is more acceptable than sacrifice. Are we going to have some prayer now? Yeah, beauty for brokenness. What's going to do, sir? Uh, beauty for 
yes. Beauty for brokenness, which picks up some of the lovely themes that we have been reflecting on together. Shall we stand and sing? Thank you. <laughs>